Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. Thank you for joining me. This is maybe my third contribution under quarantine. And I don't know what it's like to be you in your part of the world, in your house, in your apartment, or if your life has, I don't know, your working life has remained relatively unchanged or you're out of work or you're in between and um, the whole world is turned upside down. And um, I feel like I've been cycling through in some respects, like the, the stages of grief, um, denial and anger and bargaining and what's the next one? Denial, anger, bargaining, um, depression and acceptance. I forgot depression. <laughs> um, and I mean, maybe that's actually part of the process of what's happening um, internally for each of us and, and maybe on a meta scale too. Um, definitely a lot of anger, definitely an, a lot of denial, definitely a lot of bargaining. Um, and definitely a lot of depression. I don't know so much about acceptance. Maybe there are moments. And if I can say anything for sure, this um, global crisis is is inviting us back into the present moment and the realities, the reality of the present moment as it presents itself. That seems to be um, almost like a non-negotiable. Now, there are a billion, a zillion ways to avoid that direct invitation. So, um, yeah, and so today's podcast, I'm going to call New Batteries, The Marlboro Man, and The Messiah Complex, (laughs) something like that. Um, And... Yeah, let me. I want to start with a story. Let me let me first thank my uh, patron uh, supporters on Patreon.com. Uh, really, 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 really appreciate it, especially right now when everything is like um, turned upside down, and and we're all worried about uh, finances and money and and the economy and things like that. So I just I'm feeling really grateful that so many of you have said this is the kind of contribution in the world that I'd like to support. So thank you. Um, and I don't really have any like ads right now. I'm in the middle of a, of of a six week dream course and it's, it's amazing. A small group of us are meeting every Sunday night to share dreams and me and another, uh, therapist friend of mine are hosting this dream course. And I'm, I'm starting to cook up some other online offerings in while we, can't meet in groups in the wild world or Israel trips or anything like that. So look for that um, on my website, kentdobson.com. I, I will put up some more things, but nothing sort of, um, I don't know, to advertise right this second. Um, so let's start with a story. So I, uh, I've lived in this house that I'm currently in right now. I'm in my office or kind of home office that we're all sharing. Um, and the house was built in 1850. So it's an, it's an old house. I bought an old, the first house I ever owned was also a historic home. And I sort of thought I'm done with the historic home. And then I went and bought an even older one. And, uh, 
And the thing about the house and built in 1850 is that it has no garage. And maybe it had like a carriage house at one time or, or even a barn. I don't know. We don't know the whole history of the property, but as it stands now, the previous owner, a couple of owners before me built a freestanding garage and which is detached from the house. And, um, which was really nice, um, <laughs> moving from the city, which is where I lived before, where we had a tiny little driveway and we act and, and a carriage house. And then we had to park on the street. I know these are definitely first world problems of privilege. I admit that openly. Um, and so I was like, oh man, a garage. Yes. So, uh, but when we moved in, you know, you're sort of handed the keys and then you begin the process of uncovering what previous people did to the house and the renovations and the shortcuts and, um, their great ideas don't always match with yours. And maybe here's something I've actually learned, like, um, especially when it comes to the, to the lawn, you know, the garden and things. I mean, you, you end up managing at first other people's good ideas. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes it's like, wait, what the heck am I doing? Like, why am I, why am I working on someone else's, uh, vision? trying to keep that alive. <laughs> Maybe I need to have my own. In any case, um, I was really happy to have a garage. I was like, this is, this, <laughs> this is the American dream, a garage. So, um, but when we moved in, we, you know, there were this, we were sort of handed this, um, little dish of garage door openers and keys and things like that. And, um, one of the things I noticed right away is that the garage door opener opened only one side of the garage and it was slightly different than, than the other. So there are two doors, two garage doors, and they're not connected. Um, and so one side you push a little button, the door opens, but the other side, there's a button on the outside of the door. And, uh, you know, you have to push the button by hand and it goes up and, and I thought, oh, that's weird. I guess they were, uh, trying to save some money here. Um, you know, they, they build a garage. This is, this is what I was telling myself. Hey, they spent all this money making this freestanding garage. Um, and then they, you know, tried to save 60 bucks on a, on a garage door that didn't have a, an opener, you know, I was like, yeah, that's weird, but whatever. And so every day that's the side that I park on. I pull up into the driveway and I get out of the car and I go and push a little button and then I get back in the car and then I get in, drive into the space and then I get out of the car and then I get out of the garage and then I push a little button and then I go inside. I've been doing this for five, well, six years now. And, um, you know, a few times my wife was like, Hey, you know, what would it really cost for you to just go to Lowe's and get one that you push the button? I was like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, um, that would be awesome, but I don't really want to, you know, I'm not going to spend the, you know, a couple hundred bucks on, on a new garage door opener and <laughs> the, the motor or whatever. That seems too difficult, you know. Um, I'll just, I'll just settle for getting in and out of the car. And occasionally, you know, th I, this would, act I would actually kind of be angry about this. You know, I'd, I'd get in, it'd be snowing, I'd get out, I'd push the button, I'd get back in, fill my car with snow, drive in, pull out, you know, the whole thing. And a couple weeks ago, I'm sort of cleaning out some closets. And as maybe many of you are doing, sort of trying to put your house in order, 
Um, what else are we going to do right now? And, you know, I, I was moving this little dish around that had keys and garage door openers and things like this. And my wife says, you know, what, have you ever just tried swapping out the battery on that other one? I was like, no, I was like, no, 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 this, you know, that doesn't work. They, they, they put a cheap garage door opener on one side and then they put a, you know, a slightly nicer one with the push button on the other side. She's like, what, what, but have you changed the batteries out? Just, you know, just to see. It's like, no, um, but I'll do it, you know, kind of just to humor you. So I, and I had a battery right, right in my drawer. So I took it out, put it in, pushed the button, door open. Yeah. And I, I did some quick math and I had been getting out in and out of the car a minimum of like 5,000 times, 5,000 unnecessary times. I've been getting in and out of this car, pushing this button, and meanwhile, maintaining this story about someone else's laziness and cheapskateness, if that's a word. Like those previous people were too cheap to do the right thing. They were too lazy to do the right thing. And here I am suffering, quote, getting in and out of the car, pushing the button, getting into the car, push the button. And all I had to do was change, you know, a $3.25 battery and push the button and live the American dream. You know, <laughs> and this is not an unusual thing for me. You know, I, I, there was a dead tree in the yard that I mowed around for four years because I thought it was going to be too difficult to dig this dead tree up. It was a small tree. And one day as I was driving by on the mower, I put my hand out and pulled on the tree to see, you know, how secure it was. And it just lifted out of the ground as if it w wasn't even attached. It was detached from the root ball, you know, four years mowing around something unnecessary. Like, what is going on? Why do I maintain these stories about the way the world is, about how I'm inconvenienced, and then making up stories about other people, and in this case, their own laziness, and they're too cheap to do anything about it, which, of course, if you're paying attention, is what we call projection. <laughs> so, putting on someone else that I do not know my own issues. Actually, I'm too lazy to check the batteries or go to Lowe's and replace it. I'm too cheap or too lazy to check to see if this tree easily lifts up out of the ground or whatever. And there was something to me about this story that is analogous to the situation that we're in. And definitely, definitely, we are maintaining stories about the way the world is. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day on the phone and we we're, we're kind of talking about, we both make, make podcasts and write books and whatever. And we're sort of talking about how things are right now. And we were, we were both noticing that, you know, people's online personas, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I don't know, email, I suppose, if they're sending out articles and whatever, there's kind of like a universal um, underlying uh, commonality here. And it's something like this. The one thing I know about what's going on is that I don't have to change. My worldview doesn't really have to change. And it comes out as something like, hey, this only confirms the way I kind of thought things were. And that's not, um, I mean, that's obviously not the only thing that's happening, but here's an example. Like, oh, every dark and devious thought I've had about the Trump administration, this only confirms it. Or every dark and devious thought I've had about 
um, liberals and their agenda, this only confirms it. And so it's like doubling down on, on one's worldview. Now, there are moments where that breaks, of course, because you know, we're complicated and sophisticated people. In one moment, we, we might be saying out loud on our feed, this only confirms the way I view the world. And internally, we might feel something like, I don't really know, and I'm actually terrified. So, um, and, and, and it just seems obvious when you say it, crisis calls for a shift in worldview. Crisis calls for a shift in how we see the world. Crisis calls for a shift in how we understand ourselves. A crisis calls for how we understand the other or any other or the planet or the globe or the systems that we take for granted. Um, it calls for a re-examination and maybe at no point in since I've been alive has there been a more poignant opportunity um, to look in the mirror, so to speak. And to do what I called earlier on, a, on my other podcast, a searching spiritual inventory. But um, maybe you've uh, read that um, well-known Rilke poem where he's commenting on the beauty of, of, of a statue he's looking at, um, the torso of the god Apollo. And I imagine this taking place in Rome or something. Um, and he's just describing the contours and the beauties and, 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 and its evocative nature and so forth and so on. And the final line is, after having this be sort of confronted by this beauty and really a fragment of beauty from, from 2,000 years ago, the final line is, change your life, you know. And that's what happens when we're confronted by um, both crisis and also terrible beauty, you know, it calls for change, like change your life. And, and why is it that we're so resistant to such a thing? We would, we would rather live in our illusions, so to speak, live in our fantasies. Because if you come back to my battery story, um, I was living in a fantasy, an illusion. It wasn't even true. And for how long? For six years of my life, I was living under the false belief that someone was too cheap to put in a real garage door and I'm somehow inconvenienced and they are lazy and the truth is I'm lazy and I'm too cheap to do anything about it and I would rather remain in that fantasy because I'd have someone to blame. And, you know, the last podcast I was talking a little bit about the shadow and this is a, a, a massive opportunity to do some some serious personal and collective shadow work. Uh, and there's probably a lot more I could say about that. Um, but the finger pointing that is going on is absolutely off the charts. You know that, I know that, you've participated in it, I've participated in it. And that kind of finger pointing is just like what I was doing with the batteries. You know, those previous owners, lazy, um, whatever, fill in the blank. And that finger pointing helps maintain the ego's position. If it's somebody else's fault, I don't have to take responsibility. I don't have to do some self-examination. And more importantly, I don't have to change. So I've been thinking a bit about that. And, um, and one fantasy that's come to my mind is the, kind of the fantasy of the Marlboro Man. Now, all you millennials or whatever is below millennials are, might think to yourself, who the hell is that? Um, 
Well, way back in the day, back in the day, back back when I was a kid, uh, people used to smoke on airplanes, and I'm not making that up. And can you imagine, like, um, <laughs> some dude literally six inches away from you, you know, ashing in, in on the airplane, you know, in this little ashtray? I mean, seriously. Anyway, um, there were all these really amazing commercials on television, Marlboro commercials. And the Marlboro man was this rugged cowboy, um, you know, Western, individualistic, nobody can tell me what to do, um, self-reliant, sort of captain of his own fate kind of figure. And the reason why it worked is because that's a collective fantasy we have about the American way. Now, it's particularly masculine. You might you might ask yourself, what is the feminine counterpart of this archetype? I don't know. In fact, I'll put that on you. What is the feminine uh, counterpart to this fantasy, this, this image um, that's alluring and attractive? So... Um, back to you know back to the marble man it's like it's like he represents our most cherished fantasies and illusions and if you know anything about uh, about american history you know the kind of western the the west as it appeared in novels and books and dime store you know publications things like this was really a a, a kind of creation and um, a kind of creation of the publishing world, much more than than a reality on the ground. These little western towns with the swinging saloon doors and gunfights every afternoon in the in the you know in the dirt streets and so forth uh, started in with literature and at a time when people didn't have television and and people actually read um, that and it's kind of little house on the prairie sorts of images. And I'm, by the way, there's a great book about this called Fantasyland. You can check it out. Um, that talks about some of these American illusions and fantasies, but this is a huge one. And, and the thing about a kind of collective fantasy is that it seems to operate in the collective unconscious as much as it does in, in the personal one. Like you might say to yourself something like, well, that's not something I resonate with. You know, I'm a cooperative village elder and, um, you know, I thumb my nose at the rugged individualist, but that's not really the way these powerful energies and images work. They, they captivate, they're captivating unconsciously. They, they, they trigger something in us, so to speak. And that's why they work to sell cigarettes because it, people knew that cigarettes were bad for them. You know, their uncle had died of lung cancer, but it doesn't matter. And especially with the rugged individualist, I'm more powerful than even the negative consequences of, of cigarettes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and what's happening in the 21st century in a more obvious way is that this fantasy is really, really being pushed against and, and challenged and, and we're beginning to see it for what it is, which is an illusion that no matter what, no matter how powerful or strong or, um, you know, well-read or rational um, or capable or self-reliant you are, you are 
caught up like every other being on the planet in a complicated, interconnected, interwoven web of life. And you can't even make your own heartbeat, so to speak. Not so to speak, you can't. Um, and it's kind of like uh, the more the more scientific information that comes toward us in terms of our interconnectedness and um, and the more global information we're receiving, um, the more this fantasy is being challenged. And and the the coronavirus is is an example of that. It's like, um, yeah, but we're Americans, you know, we're rugged, we're individualistic. We can take care of ourselves. We can close our borders. Um, it's definitely not going to affect us like those other countries who just whatever, fill in the blank, um, only do what their government tells them or whatever the case may be. And um, here we're all about freedom and that and that and life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And, and, and actually, if you, you probably know this, but it's worth saying if you don't. Um, I think it was, um, I can't remember who said which, but so forgive me for that. But I think Benjamin Franklin wanted to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of pro- property. Thomas Jefferson said, let's soften it and make it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in either case, it's one of those two scenarios. You can swap characters, but it tells you what's revealing beneath that life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. That That's that rugged Marlboro man. No one can tell me what to do. And, and, and personal property um, is at the very core of the of the American experiment, of course. You know, when I lived in Israel, one of the things I, I, I learned is that nobody owns private property. The only private property owners in the entire land of Israel are actually the churches. The Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Armenian Church, they own, they own the property on which their churches are located. Everything else is owned by the government, the Israeli government, that is. And even if you buy a house, you're essentially leasing the land. Uh, very different way of conceiving um, a, a civilization, you know. I mean, we have great creativity in these kinds of things. So I'm not here arguing one is better than 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 the other. Let's just leave that aside for a second. I'm talking about the fantasy that's getting pushed against, and um, and and so it's, it's kind of like a side move here. I've been noticing something, and um, and. One of the things that is kind of shocking, really, is that the divisions in America right now, which we tend to think about as right or left, red or blue, at moments in the middle of this have gotten worse. And you would think, you would ask, during a time of global crisis, shouldn't people come together? And you probably would say, yeah, people should come together, and they probably will come together. And of course, there are moments of that. Um, the news media, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to sound like the Trump administration, really is in love with drama and crisis and division, and that's what gets the airtime. And all of the hidden stories of cooperation and love of neighbor and sacrifice are often buried, or they're put at the end of these news broadcasts as a kind of like feel-good Hollywood moment, like, oh, look at little Timmy and what he did for for his neighbor, and he made this sign, you know. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. And then we move, move back into the, the tyranny of the, of the urgent crisis. So um, with that said, these dispositions uh, I'm finding 
whether you want to call it right or left or red or blue or whatever, there's, there's a sense of doubling down, doubling down on worldview, doubling down on, on my sense of I'm right, my worldview is right, and I don't have to change kind of thing. There's a lot of doubling down. It, and I've noticed that it's coming out like this. So um, there, I'm, I'm speaking about some caricatures and some polls, but as soon as I do, you can probably recognize either yourself or your friends as kind of fitting into these two polls. So here's the one poll. Um, this is overblown. Uh, no one can tell me what to do. And I can't trust the facts. And no one is going to take away my rights my personal rights, which are given to me by whatever, the Constitution or by God or by my own autonomy. Uh, and what I'd like to say about that is that that too is, as we all um, share, there's a lot of fear behind such a notion. Um, and in fact, this kind of no one can tell me what to do Often you hear right after that, I refuse to live my life in fear. I refuse to live my life in this kind of false, fearful state that the government wants me in, something like that, or that the powers that be want me to remain in so that I'll be obedient citizen and follow some kind of uh, their agenda. So no one can tell me what to do, and I refuse to live in fear. And as soon as someone says something like, those people over there are afraid— then you know you're getting close to some shadow stuff, um, some projection stuff. You know you're getting close to, I'm afraid, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to um, move against this in, in, a, in almost a, in a violent way. I'm going to go strongly against this movement and say, no one can tell me what to do. I refuse to bend my knee to any kind of rule or even suggestion by the powers that be. And, you know, in technical psychological terms, you might call that, you know, phobic, counterphobic, will, counter will. Uh, in other words, um, the very thing that, that um, we bump up against, meaning fear, I'm going to plow through it um, as hard as I can to kind of break through and get to the other side and really to deny that is there and to push it down. It's that counterphobic extreme, you know, it's why people, you know, they, the, you know, it's kind of the, the adrenaline junkie. What, what drives the adrenaline junkie is actually fear, you know, and there's this counterphobic, if I push hard against that and break through it, which is actually quite amazing. I'm, I've, I've been known to be a bit of adrenaline junkie myself. Just that momentary transcendent breakthrough in the middle of that is very addictive, you know, um, but it requires a, a pushing hard against something to, to find that kind of breakthrough. Anyway, it's a bit of an aside. So, um, you know, and by the way, the image that I'm describing is a bit like the Marlboro Man. No one can tell me what to do. I can smoke cigarettes on my horse, you know, F you all. You know, I'm, I'm just free out here with my cows in the wind and, and the pistol by my side. And um, I can protect myself and my family and, and so forth and so on. And again, think about it as an underlying, unconscious, um, collective image that rests in the American psyche. Don't take it so personally. You can say something like, you too are connected to this image, whether you reject it outright or not. It's in the, the milieu of, of Western American culture. All right. Now, the, the maybe opposite pole 
of this image of no one can tell me what to do is um, I will be safe if I follow the rules. And both of them also rooted in fear. I'm afraid. And I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control. So in the one case, I'm going to take personal control. In the other case, I'm afraid and I'm going to subjugate myself to the rules, the, the rational, you know, um, collective here and, and do what everybody else is doing. And that's the way, um, I'll be safe. Now you could say, well, what the heck is wrong with that? Well, nothing really. And maybe, maybe both dispositions have something to offer out. Maybe I'll say something about that in a second, but, um, what quickly follows though is a sense of self-righteousness and, I'm the rule follower. And in fact, in a sense, I'm the kind of savior here of society, culture, my family, by doing the right thing, by obeying the the rules. And everyone else out there is the problem. And here you have the world being divided up into the good and to the evil. Just like in person number one, no one can tell me what to do. And anyone who tells me what to do or forces me is evil. That's really what's behind that. And here you have something like anyone who who violates or challenges the rules in any respect is evil. And if they were just eliminated, we all be safe as a society. And both of them kind of pull into these extremes. And and the second one here comes with a lot of self-righteousness. You know, I, um, my wife was telling me about... Um, Someone posted a picture on Facebook of, of some teenagers at the park and she blurred out their faces and said, you know, shame on these parents, shame, shame, shame. How dare they? They let their teenagers meet at a park. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. I'm blurring out their faces because if I were to put them up, you would know who they were and you would know who their parents are. And right now I'm just, you know, uh, spreading this as a warning. You know, all of this, by the way, is done abstractly in the form of social media. It doesn't appear that this person, as far as we know, it seems pretty obvious from from her post has no intention of confronting the actual parents or the or the teenagers themselves or even in in a non-confrontational way hey like what's going on um you know is is this safe is this smart you know you know what do your parents have or what or the parents themselves just heaping public shame dividing the world up good and evil i'm on the good side rule following side these are the rule breakers they're on the rule breaking side um and the world gets more divisive. What I'm suggesting here is that it's the finger pointing that is the clue to the areas in which we need to grow up, the areas in which we need to have our own worldview challenged. Um, If you are, no one can tell me what to do. That is the very thing that is pushing against the way you presently see the world. That's the thing that needs to be challenged. Um, And if you are, um, I always, I always follow the rules and I, I am the self-righteous citizen here. That too, that finger pointing mechanism back at the whoever, the Trump administration or, you know, you know, I felt my, I found myself doing this when, when Trump was not wearing a mask, you know, uh, when he, he visited something and same with the same with, uh, the vice president also visited some place without a mask and other people were wearing masks. I'm like, what the heck is going on? You know, like how dare they, you know, meanwhile, how often do I? Have I walked into a place without one? This kind of stuff. It's it's so much easier to point the finger than to look in the mirror. Maybe I don't know if you remember when you were a kid uh, and 
you know, there was this dumb little saying we used to say in elementary school, like, oh, you're pointing at me and three fingers are pointing back at you. Yeah, that's actually it. That that That's like, that's a Zen master saying right there. You point the finger and there are three pointing back at you. Um, and so what am I suggesting here? I'm suggesting something like the coronavirus is a massive personal and global invitation to let take a look at those three fingers pointing back at us what actually makes the world safer smarter better more empathetic compassionate um what how, how do we achieve such a world well we don't if we're unwilling to do the kind of self-examination that i'm talking about kind of searching spiritual inventory it doesn't get any safer when we just double down and insist my worldview is the right worldview period and you know i promised a few minutes ago um i might say something about the dispositions have gifts like every disposition there are um gifts and a dark sides extroversion introversion um right brain, left brain, um, traditional uh, views in terms of politics and religion and progressive views in terms of politics and religion. They all have gifts. They all have gifts, everything. And they also have a dark side. And, you know, the gift of no one can tell me what to do, the gift of that is, all right, um, there's a time to, to follow the rules and there's a time for the searching moral inventory that says these rules are a violation of of whatever of human rights of of my own ethics of the right thing to do there's a time for that and 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 there's a time to say i submit my own personal freedoms to the collective that we need a sense of of rules in which society nods to and says yep for the greater good will um, our personal freedoms we will will take as second place here in the race to the greater needs of society. There's a time and a place for that. Those, so both, both have gifts. And maybe the tension of the two is um, it's, it's possible where a kind of third uh, creative um, disposition might rise up. That's why we need serious, uh, not finger-pointing, political and religious conversations but anyway um uh, back to to the image of the marble man because there's one other dimension here that i think is interesting so um this is coming from the musings of kent Thompson, <laughs> and um i might be wrong that's the first thing it's worth saying and my podcast is called hints and guesses not certainties and dogmas so hints and guesses here um i've been thinking a bit about the messiah and what could be called the kind of messianic image or even messianic complex here. And being a historian, I know a little bit about the origins of, of the Messiah. And, and yes, to a certain extent, the Messiah comes from the idea of the Messiah, the concept, the image, comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. But if you're really a student of the Bible, you, you know that the Hebrew Scriptures contains very little information about this so-called Messiah. It's, it's basically poetry and longings and and images and symbols so they're very hard to say this plus this equals and that's the problem with fundamentalism it's, it takes verses and treats them in a very literal mathematical this verse plus this verse plus this verse plus this world event equals something like that but 
Um, one of the things that scholars are uh, pretty sure of is that the notion of a coming Messiah, which really means king or anointed one, is more um, Zoroastrian, uh, Persian, in other words, that that the origins of even the Jewish Messiah are a little bit older in the Persian uh, myths and stories and, and worldview. And that makes a lot of sense because the Jewish people spent a significant amount of time in Babylon. And, and, and... Sometimes it's unfair to say, you know, like you're following it back to the single source. These are much more like it's a tributary in this in the in a stream that's rising. And one of the tributaries is probably the Zoroastrian notion of the Messiah. But what's interesting about it is that it's it's in a way very concrete. A man will come who will be a physical king and rule in a in a in a very literal place and put the world to rights. That's the very sort of um, simplistic notion of the Messiah. Now, um, the the broader worldview that brought that forth is a worldview of kingdoms. You know, you don't need a king unless you have a kingdom, and um, and even to back up, even before there were empires, you have the 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 reality of the city state, and that's an even more well defined and concrete kingdom. It's a city that's also a state, and in the middle of that city lives the king, usually right, actually literally in the middle, in the palace, and he rules his subjects either fairly or unfairly, and there might be some laws that even the king has to follow and things like that, but um, it's very much rooted in a single person being good or bad. Um, and the idea that a single person will come and put the world to rights is the is kind of the, the backbone or the spine of the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about the Jesus story is that I always, I, I mean, I felt this as soon as I really started digging into um, kind of context and history and so forth, it, it, it struck me that Jesus is kind of much more like an anti-Messiah than a Messiah. He's not a king. He's not a king by birth. He's not a person of power. He doesn't actually consolidate power around him. He has a kind of um, anti, um, what, what do you call it in the palace where you have like, you know, um, I was going to say the palace guard, but that's not the right word, like kind of like an entourage. Maybe that, we use that more contemporary word. He has an entourage, but it's like there, it's a very ragtag sort of entourage. You've got someone who's kind of a hothead Peter who's like all in and then all out and you've got a betrayer and you've got um, their 12, 12 men and seven women and and some of them have questionable reputations and they come from different layers of society hardly um, a cabinet or an entourage that is going to have any kind of political influence or say and and this kind of anti-messiah figure comes on the scene and instead of doing what everyone thought the messiah would do which is take take his rightful place on the throne in Jerusalem and rule in a very literal way. Um, instead, of course, he's executed. And, I mean, you couldn't have a more counter-messianic story to the belief and idea of this single Messiah complex. There's going to be a Savior. He's going to come in. He's going to put the world to rights. He's going to get rid of the enemies. And Jesus is confusing and clouding the whole scene. And what's interesting about the development of Christianity is that I think at its best, the early Christians got what Jesus was up to. 
in, in my view. And you can get little hints of it. Like you even have hints of it in Paul, who I know is kind of a bit neurotic and he's a bit difficult to read. I mean, he even contradicts himself at times. But he says that in this Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. That is probably one of the most powerful and mystical um, passages about the Messiah in the entire New Testament, that whatever this kind of anti-Messiah embodies, what ends up being shaped is a collective in which there is no real fundamental hierarchy, um, not on the deep level. In fact, there's a kind of unity, a kind of oneness, and his way of putting it was male-female, these are the big archetypal divisions, male, female, Jew, Gentile, um, slave or free. They're one. They're one. And, um, and you might ask yourself, well, what kind of kingdom is that? It's like, it's like the very notion of the king or the kingdom gets disseminated among the people. It's like it becomes the collective. And Paul takes the, the metaphor even further and says that the, the body of Christ is the physical peoples that make it up. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave free. So if you start to ask yourself, well, well, who is this quote savior? The image that Paul gives us is the everyday average people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave free. That's the Messiah. And what ends up happening is, is a kind of utter dismantling of a single figure who's going to come in on a white horse and is going to fix, save, and punish. It gets turned completely on, up on, upside down and says that very notion is collective. <laughs> um, that's a very radical view of the world. And what happens, though, in the in as Christianity develops from just a Jewish sect into a religion, is that the the idea that, okay, well, Jesus came and he did all this stuff, but that wasn't enough. We still need the single savior on a white horse that's going to swoop in and put the world to rights. The, the, the Messiah complex, as I'm calling it here, is, was still very powerful and gave rise to, in my opinion, some misunderstandings and misreadings of books like Revelation and and the symbol of the second coming and literalizes that and says, okay, well, he didn't do what he was supposed to do that one time. He'll do it in the future. That's kind of like the idea that the end times are coming and then there'll be a single person. Now, and we can argue about the theology of that and, you know, I might be wrong and you might have some other things to offer. But, um, and I wrote a little bit about that in my book, Bitten by a Camel, because I have a chapter on um, on end times called Ending End Times, something like that. Um, but that's not even my main point right now. It's that that Messiah complex is what we carry then and put on our political and, um, and well, definitely our political figures, but also anyone famous. And, um, and what I'm suggesting right now, if I can be as clear as I can, is that we need an utter shift in consciousness to let go of the notion that there'll be a single savior because with that, when someone is not the single savior, they turn into the antichrist or the devil and they're the single problem. 
This is what's happening with people who have can sum up the entire world's problems by putting it on the shoulders of Trump. That that is coming from the exact same consciousness that says, um, "Well, we need." A leader that supports my worldview and my values. That's the pro- the problem with the world is that we don't have the right Messiah. Do you see how much power that that the worldview and the consciousness hands over to famous people and political people and people in leadership? We give them a tremendous amount of power by both by these kinds of messianic expectations. And you might say to yourself, that sounds like too much. I don't think so. I think this notion operates in unconscious. I felt it in a way when Obama was elected. Like I remember those opening um, speeches when he took the presidency and it's a long time coming. He said something like that, but change is finally here. And, you know, I cried, you know, I mean, many of us cried like, how is this? But the system itself, he will be our single savior. Um, and the utter devastation when so much of what he worked for is just just evaporates with the next round of leadership, you know, it's like the same consciousness. We've yet to, I think, really let that collapse into a much more collective um, field, like no Jew or Gentile, slave or female, uh, no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that you know, to use the the cliche, maybe it's Gandhi, um, we are the ones we've been waiting for, <laughs> or uh, be the change you want to see in the world, that kind of thing, that, all right, there's a time and a place for leadership, but when it comes to real change, every single person in the equation matters, every single person, and male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, or you start filling in the blank, gay or straight, Republican, Democrat. Um, We have to get out of the idea that there is a silver bullet, a person on a white horse, an election that's going to fix it all. We know this with climate change. it's It's like screaming at us. There is no single solution. There is no single solution. You can have all the solar panels you want, but they're all still manufactured. Um, using raw elements of the earth, including coal and quartz. That's what makes up a solar panel. Yeah, but I'm, but I'd rather live in the in the illusion that what I'm doing is pure. There's no purity anywhere, if you want to put it that way. Which which calls for a more collective responsibility. And now I'm going to say something that's sort of paradoxical, which is, it's collective responsibility for sure which requires our own participation, individual responsibility. But if we keep handing over the reins all the time to the next Messiah, um, we're going to continue to be bitterly disappointed and our consciousness, our global consciousness around our togetherness will never evolve. It will get, it will, it will continue to be sucked back into the corners of our respective positions. Meanwhile, we point the finger that if the other person was just simply not here, everything would be put to rights. So, um, okay, how, how do I, I, I know how I want to end. I want to end with a David White poem. Big surprise, those of you who listened to my podcast before. Because... Um, this poem has come to me a couple times in the last few weeks. Be- and it comes back to my um, battery situation. <laughs> is there anything 
I can do to swap out the batteries in my life, to do the thing that's right in front of me that I keep putting off, that um, will diminish my capacity to continue to point the finger at so-and-so or at my previous house owners and their lazy. Is, Ken, is there anything right in front of me with the thing close in, right close in, nearby, not in some distant election or some um, special whatever future, but start the thing close in, the batteries that need changing, the dead tree in the yard that needs some attention, that kind of thing. And so the poem is called Start Close In. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first. Start with the first, the thing close in, the step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way of starting the conversation. Start with your own question. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To find another's voice, to find another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes a private ear listening to another. Start right now. Take a small step. You can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focus. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. So thanks for listening. I do really genuinely wish you um, safety. Um, stay safe and stay smart and be courageous from the French word heart. Live with a heart wide open. And I'm, um, I'm talking to myself as well. Um, and thanks for being a part of this. You can support this podcast um, through Patreon, which you can find on my website. But really, uh, more than that, share it. If there, if you heard a hint and a guess that somehow stirred something in you or for you, pass it on. Um, that's the way this uh, podcast has grown, which I'm really grateful for. I said last time I crossed over 100,000 total downloads, which is, is mind-blowing to me. Um, I had really small expectations. And... Um, and thank you. And thank you so, to so many of you who have listened to more than one episode. Um, I hope you find a hint and a guess in here and um, that you'll take your own small step uh, even this week. Peace.